0: Welcome to the Lover's Hole. You're with Mike and Ian, and we are reading through the Aubrey Matron books of Patrick O'Brien. Ian, last time we finished up, well, actually, last time we've been going through a number of Crossing the Line specials. You might sort of remind us where we were right before that and where we're going today.
1: Yeah, Mike, of course. So just before our three special Crossing the Line episodes, we had got to the end of Far Side of the World. Jack and Stephen and some of the crew of HMS Surprise had been trapped ashore on a Pacific island with an unruly crew of shipwrecked American sailors from the USS Norfolk, some of them British deserters or even mutineers, And just as Jack had realized that they might have lost the surprise altogether, that she might not have weathered the reefs, the Norfolks and those mutineers, the Hermiones, were becoming increasingly aggressive towards the surprises. There'd been this fight broke out. They'd stopped the launch of the British escape boat as the American whaler came into view as anticipated by Jack. But right at the death, that American whaler didn't stop. She surrendered. She was being chased by, that's right, the joyful surprise. So, Mike, I think last time we were hoping to just turn the page and read what happened next as they extracted themselves, Jack, and the rest of the surprises from this situation with the Americans and from this deserted island in the Pacific. But no, this time we're at the beginning of the reverse of the medal. The surprise and the captured whaler join the West Indies fleet. So we're back in the Atlantic. We're two oceans away from where we were at the end of the last book. People are wondering whether Jack's luck has run out. Stephen is in high demand as a surgeon and as an intelligence agent. And Jack gets a surprise visit from an unknown family member.
0: Yeah, it's so true. In a true O'Brien form, you know, <laughs> instead of just turning the page like we sometimes do in these novels, it's just a continuation. Yeah. Boom, we're now joining our heroes as they sail into Bridgetown in Barbados. This is the uh, the home of, the, as you said, the West Indies fleet, the squadron there, uh, Admiral Sir William Pellew. And we're kind of like, whoa, whoa, wait a minute, what's going on? And the surprise is towing a dismasted ship. So I'm scratching my head a little bit here going, wait a minute, what's that ship here? And the <laughs> admiral is asking himself the same question. He's watching the surprise come in and he's thinking... What is she towing there? And he wonders, of course, if it's a prize, because if it's a prize, one twelfth of that value is his. And he knows the surprise. He knows Jack Aubrey, and he happens to love music. So he's hoping she'll go ahead and get on in. So he'll have a little music and find out how much richer he is. So he's chatting with his flag lieutenant, William Richardson. William Richardson, I didn't recognize, but they said he was called Spotted Dick when he was a youth because of his acne. And I'm thinking, wait, whoa, Spotted Dick was one of Jack's midshipmen. So yet another one of Jack's youngsters who's grown up, grown up to be quite the Adonis, O'Brien tells us. And it turns out that the Admiral has a passion for good looking men. Uh, The Admiral's talking to William Richardson you know, his flag lieutenant about that. And the admiral is recounting all of Jack's former luck in the Mediterranean, recounting what a great fiddle player he is, and then saying, oh, yeah, that's right, of course. I remember you sailed with him. You know all of this. And I love this that uh, O'Brien points out that, uh, you know, the admiralty knows that he has this passion for beautiful men, but he's never, you know, indiscreet. And they treat that just like his passion for Handel which uh, is an even greater passion, is is passion for music here.
1: (laughs) It's a really nice moment, isn't it? And by the way, this arrival in the West Indies really made me stop and kind of pay attention. I had built an inventory in my head, certainly before this circumnavigation, an inventory of all the places where the cannon goes. And I was pretty sure that we didn't spend any time in the West Indies. But here we are in Barbados, the heart of what you might call the old British colonial West Indies, And Mike, it's interesting because it was a big part of service in the Royal Navy, in the Regency, in the Napoleonic era, the West Indies station was critical, and it's kind of striking that we didn't spend any time there. And maybe that's just a historical accident, just like we didn't spend any time, you know, on blockading the West Coast of France or, you know, at the Battle of Trafalgar. But it might also be, of course, that the economic connection to the West Indies is pivoted on slavery, and it's pretty clear that O'Brien really wanted to make some points about his real kind of repugnance for slavery and we're going to come back to that i think later on in the canon so maybe that's the reason why we just have a little touch and go here in the west indies and we have heard a little bit indirectly that the west indies is a home of kind of rather nasty disreputable flash bullying kind of self-indulgent officers and i think i was already ready to dislike captain ghoul of the flagship the irresistible Below the admiral in the great cabin, Captain Ghoul of the Irresistible is watching the surprise. And Mike, this is one of those go to methods that O'Brien uses. We get a third person point of view as the surprise hovers into view. And that means that the third person can catch us up a little bit on the nature of Jack and on where the ship has been and on what they've been doing. And Ghoul's doing this, describing it to his wife. So this is a nice new twist. The third person point of view is this officer and his wife mrs ghoul and ghoul is telling his wife that neither jack nor his ship were at all the thing and starts out with a very high level statement that jack can't keep his breeches on and had ridden his luck to death and i think mike he kind of goes on to dig a little bit deeper into the details i don't think he quite realizes how much of an appetite his wife has got for these kind of details he says, oh, he's wasted his prize money on horses. He's invested in questionable business schemes. He's squandered his money on fancy things for his wife rather than investing it wisely. And we get very, very clear <laughs> signals here that Mrs. Gould is becoming more and more interested in Jack. She's like, oh, really? What? He's a bit of a rake. Oh, he blows it all on jewels for his wife. And she's realizing that actually maybe missus aubrey Albury's got the better end of the naval marriage deal here. Captain Ghoul presses the point. He says, He is a rake, a whoremonger, a sad fellow. When we were in midshipmen together in the Resolution on the Cape Station, he hid a black girl called Sally in the cable tears. Just a little Chekhov moment there. Um, Used to carry her most of his dinner, cried like a bullcalf when she was discovered and put over the side. The captain turned him before the mast, disrated him, and turned him before the mast as a common seaman. But perhaps. That was partly because of the tripe, too. The tripe, my dear? This is a complete non-sequitur Mrs. Gould. The tripe? Yes, he stole most of the captain's dish of tripe by means of a system of hooks and tackles. We were on precious commons in our mess, and the girl needed some, too. Famous tripe it was. Famous tripe. I remember it now. So he was turned before the mast for the rest of the commission to learn him morals, and that is why I am senior to him. So my I I love this characterization of Ghoul, you know, just by opening his mouth and speaking and telling these stories, he's characterizing himself as a bit bit banal and a bit of an asshole, to be quite honest. And we get these nice little flickers of interest in Ghoul's wife towards Aubrey. Yeah. And and also, by the way, that period of being uh, disrated and put before the mast is one of the episodes in his career that Jack credits for making him the captain that he is. So I think Google shows himself out to be a bit shallow here, bragging about his seniority to Jack.
0: Right. And, and he clearly has it in for Jack. I mean, he goes on and on and on. He, he points out, you know, as it, continuing to talk, he says, you know, Aubrey's just about to dismast his ship by running it straight into Needham's Point. And O'Brien tells us this seemed to be the general opinion aboard the flagship. And talk died away entirely to revive some minutes later in laughter and applause as a surprise racing towards destruction under a great spread of canvas. Put her Helma Lee hauled on an unseen spring leading from her labored <laughs> cathead to the towline, and sput about like a cutter. I have not seen that caper since I was a boy, said the Admiral, thumping the rail with pleasure. Very prettily done. You have to be damn sure of your ship and your men to venture upon it, by God. Determine, fella. Now he will come in easily on this leg. Man, Ian, tell us, what is this maneuver Jack has pulled here to the delight of everybody except perhaps Captain Gould?
1: Well, it's a variation on a, thing, on a tactic called club hauling. Trying to get a square rigged ship through the eye of the wind to tack is a slow maneuver. It's a bit risky. It's a bit uncertain. This Is one of the reasons why ships have become nearly shipwrecks in early moments in the cannon. So this is the equivalent of doing a handbrake turn, of temporarily drawing a sudden stop to the ship somehow, in this case, by hauling our toe and doing this kind of, you know, like a skateboarder swinging on a lamppost. Right. Um, sounds great. Sounds great. And a nice little moment for Jack. A little bit of kudos for Jack for his seamanship. So back on deck, Captain Gould's wife watches all the small boats heading for the surprise and being turned away. And she asks the Flag Lieutenant Richardson what's going on. He explains slightly delicately that the boats are filled with ladies of pleasure and that Captain Aubrey disapproves of them, especially doesn't like them for the youngsters. And... Mrs. Gould is horrified to learn that, especially for other captains, this is regarded as a bit of a commonplace. She's appalled that most captains think nothing of one to two whores per man coming aboard when they dock and cavorting with the midshipmen. She's certain that her husband, Captain Gould, would never allow it, especially around the children. And Richardson turns away and doesn't comment. And I think, again, we get a little between the lines there about the character of Captain Gould. That's for sure. It's, it's
0: fascinating because, as, as you said earlier, Ian, we're getting all this third-person point of view. We haven't covered it all here. We've got all the men below decks, you know, one of Bondin's uh, relatives and others talking about Jack, talking about the surprise and everything else. O'Brien gives us a little bit of that here. They're, they're watching, they're talking about Jack, this maneuver and being a great fighting captain and being, as they say, uncommon taunt you know, that this, you know, he's kind of a very strict, very efficient, no women allowed. And uh, one of them says that this taut Captain Jack is about to get a surprise. And another one says the black parson will bring him up around turn and laughs. And another one adds, we're all human. We all have our little misfortunes. Boy, and I remember I was, I was reading, you know, I was listening to this on Audible. And I was like, Wait, what did they just say? And I went back and I listened again. I immediately got out my Kindle to read it. I thought this
1: makes absolutely no sense. I don't get it. I guess I'll just have to go on. But it, it's a really smart thing, isn't it? Just a little, little. It's, it's a very natural, low-key sounding bit of dialogue, but I think it's meant to draw our attention to the idea that we're going to learn about some kind of misfortune pretty soon, right? So. That was one lot of point of view um, exposition. We've got another really nicely put together bit of a point of view exposition between Stephen Maturin, the surgeon, and Mr. Waters, the surgeon of the flagship. And Mr. Waters is trying to spot Stephen and He's looking out for him because he wants to consult. And the conversation that we get between the surgeon and the Admiral Secretary, Mr. Stone, to bring the reader up to date on Stephen's background and character. It's really great. I think Stephen talking to doctors and intelligence types is another go-to vehicle for plot exposition. So here we've got another surgeon and another administrator catching us all up on the doings and the characteristics of Stephen Maturin. Mr. Stone knows that Maturin works in intelligence and is a supporter of Sir Joseph Blaine, who he has heard is about to be overcome in a hidden war for power and influence in Whitehall. Stone deals fairly quickly with a couple of small local intelligence matters, but he would like to do more in intelligence, and he knows that Maturin is one of the Admiralty's most valued agents. So here we've got caught up pretty quickly on the character of Stephen. He's a surgeon, he's highly regarded. He's in intelligence. So, Mike, another feature of Patrick O'Brien doing storytelling, he loves chopping and changing between perspectives and points of view, doesn't he? So we cut back again away from stone and waters to Jack meeting the admiral. Yeah, Jack's now
0: aboard the flagship, and and, and you know, the Admiral, of course, goes cut straight to the chase. You know, what is that that you're towing, Aubrey? And he's, he's delighted to learn that it's the recaptured whaler. It's that one that we saw at the very end of our side of the world, the William Enderby of London, a lawful prize stuffed with $97,000 of materials from the other captured whalers. So, It's not just a prize. It's a really nice prize, a a lawful prize. And the admiral tells Jack that Poolings had stopped by. He had the dane, that packet, and also informs Jack that they actually got home in record time because they'd been chased by a very heavy privateer the whole way. And then the admiral asked Jack about the gold chest that had been on the packet. Uh, you know, ask if Jack might have recovered them, thinking there's a little bit more treasure. And Jack says they had been lost to the Americans long before, you know, they recaptured the Danier. But they had received what Jack called some confidential papers. And, and we learn, O'Brien tells us, that that Jack's shading the truth here. We remember that brass box that was full of these enormous sums of non-traceable money. And Stephen found this, and Stephen, Jack had seen it, and Stephen had warned Jack not to reveal its contents. It was clearly meant to subvert some government, and the fewer people who knew about it, the better. So Jack is kind of caught up in the, you know, I've got to do my duty as a captain, but I know the intelligence world is Stephen's world. I want to be careful about that. And so he he, he kind of threads this narrow tightrope here. And then Jack moves quickly on to telling the Admiral about his mission in the Pacific. You know, the Admiral catches him up, says he'll get head money for all the American prisoners, and does agree to take the prisoners off Jack's hand once Jack tells him about all the Hermione's that are aboard. Uh, And it turns out that the Admiral had lost a young cousin as part of that mutiny, a cousin who got hacked to death. And so he is very keen to convene a court-martial immediately uh, and tells Jack, you know, I'll need you to stay for it, so we'll have enough people. And you know, Jack's a little like, oh, man, I really wanted to get on the way home. But uh, the Admiral also tells him how bad the music is there. As a matter of fact, they've got a whole group trying to learn how to play German flute. So we, had, <laughs> we, we chortled about this in the music episode. Here it is back with a whole German flute choir, it sounds like. And Jack tells the Admiral about the great musical on Surprise, about Martin's Handel, about him and Stephen playing. And the Admiral says, well, you know, as a matter of fact, I, I really want to consult with Matron as a surgeon. I'd love to play with the two of you. Uh, he invites them to supper. And he also asks Jack to kind of arrange things so that, you know, it's, it's appropriate for Jack's surgeon to come see the captain when the captain already has his own surgeon.
1: Very good. And it's funny, it's a nice moment of really embellishing Jack's character. You know, and all the way through the books, Jack kind of goes up and down. You know, is he anxious about aging? Is he feeling a bit inadequate? Is he worried about his own conduct? Is his, you know, is his libido letting him down? Or is he at the top of the crest where he's resourceful and a good friend and a savvy kind of co-protagonist for Stephen? And he's absolutely on the top of the crest here. He's being described, you know, he really subtly plays around this potential risk to dis- divulging Stephen's identity. He's demonstrating real humanity in the fact that he's he's feeling very leery about this court-martial. Right. He's got some real anxieties about seeing this court-martial getting, getting seen through to its conclusion. And I've got to ask myself the question, we're being asked to really see Jack as his most kind, most open-minded, most humane, most resourceful person. Is there something that's going to happen anytime soon that's going to call upon that broad-mindedness and humanity and good spirit? I don't know.
0: Mm, I don't know. Let's let's watch. We still have, though, O'Brien assures us, as you say, not only do we have this wonderful Jack that we know and love but he's still the same old Jack that we know and love. So you you might tell us a little bit about him heading off to see Captain Ghoul or begging leave of the Admiral here, right?
1: Yeah. So the the Admiral tells Jack that Ghoul, as we know, is well known to Aubrey, Ghoul's got married recently. And that makes Jack think of Sophie and how much he misses her. Another thing that we might need to stick a pin in, because we're going to come back to the memory of Sophie and the connection to Sophie in a second. So the, the Admiral asks Jack to be civil when he arranges for Stephen and the Admiral Surgeon to agree on Stephen seeing the Admiral. And they're kind of playing nicely in the convention of one physician asking another physician's approval before second opinioning on a patient. And Jack is all over this. He says, that's absolutely fine. I shall speak to them, he says, like a sucking dove. And Pellew, the Admiral, corrects him. Brilliant line. Pig, Aubrey, sucking pig. Doves don't suck. (laughs) I love
0: that. Oh, my. You know, Jack walks in to talk to the surgeon, and he quickly sees that the admiral surgeon has all these pictures laid out on the desk, pictures of leprosy and elephantitis. You know, Mr. Walters has had these beautiful watercolors done to show Stephen some of what he's run across on the local islands there. And Jack, of course, has no stomach for any of this. He uh, quickly arranges it with the surgeon, and he heads out. Waters explains to Matron, you know, I, as Jack leaves, that that perhaps Matron like you know, has noticed, like he has, that many medical men may be kind of a bit of a hypochondriac. And then he and Stephen's kind of thinking to himself, this sounds kind of like rehearsed lines. I wonder what he's getting at. And sure enough, Walters shows him this swelling on his side and he says he doesn't value the opinion of any other surgeons on the station and he really wants to ask Stephen what he thinks about it. And so we're getting this kind of, like you said, these different people interacting, we're going from different points of view, from one situation to the next, and and O'Brien is just weaving this beautiful tapestry of things as he moves quickly through this first chapter
1: yeah it's it's really clever and as well as the connection between the principals and the people that they're now with we've got to we've got to tie up the connection to the rest of the world right so jack goes to see the secretary and asks if there's any mail for the surprise and this this has been a a bugbear for jack in many you know distant colonial british ports in many chapters of many books in the canon and of course there isn't <sighs> So Jack asks around for news from home and uh, what's been going on? He says, what's been going on in in these last few months? He was on a Pacific island and now he's been traveling around the world. Stone says that Bonaparte's building ships even faster than the British ships are wearing out. And remember, we're at 1812 and a bit now. So we're quite a long way into the, the, the Napoleonic era of the wars of the time. Stone also points out that Bonaparte seems to have excellent intelligence and knows just what to say to make the British allies distrust each other as if he has, here's the quote from the text, as if he has someone listening behind the cabinet door or under the council table. And Mike, we're reminded that there's this suspicion. In fact, there's the actuality of some treachery at a fairly high level in the British intelligence service. Stephen hasn't smoked it yet, but we the readers know that there are people acting against British interests at the heart of British naval intelligence.
0: Absolutely.
1: (sighs) Anyway, Stone says that his brother in the city thinks Britain won't be able to pay for everything soon, that funds, he means the stock market and bonds, are at a historic low. People can only withdraw paper notes from banks, not the gold that they had deposited. So the the whole market is in a bit of a funk. Stocks and shares are shockingly low, even... The, what regarded then as the, the guilts of the time, East India shares and exchequer bills are valued very low. When there were rumours of peace, everything went up. But when the rumours proved false, everything fell again. And he says, if someone had £5,000 to buy capital stock, they would be well set up after the war. Mm. I mean, two, two really interesting things in this little giveaway here. First of all, by the way, rumours of the end of the war proving false. That reconfirms that the Norfolks were wrong right. and that Jack was right to stand on the letter of the law when he met them on the island. And we also have a little bit of Chekhov here, Chekhov's stock market. We're introduced to the idea that there's the possibility for speculation in this really kind of distorted and disturbed conditions in the market. Hmm, I wonder which of our principals might get tempted into exploiting that situation. Let's see. Mm. Stern had asked a number of the
0: folks around about, you know, mail for the surprise and everything else. And then one, one clerk comes back and says, even though the surprise has no mail, a black man who had stopped by with a message or letter for Captain Aubrey. Jack asked if he was a slave or, or perhaps a seaman. No, he was an educated person. He'd been looking for surprise for some time. And when she came in, looking specifically for Captain Aubrey. And Jack says he really doesn't know, he believes, any educated black men and thinks to himself, perhaps this is a lawyer's clerk trying to serve a writ on him and thinks, OK, they can only do that on shore. So I think I just might just stay on the ships while we're here and not go ashore. Yeah.
1: <laughs> and Again, that's that's a beat that we've, we've encountered before, right? And Jack and... Uh... Uh, vo- avoiding the uh the lawyers clerks and the treasury officials ashore right right so jack asks williamson his midshipman to give his compliments to captain Gould and ask if he jack can wait upon him in 10 minutes and we again we get this really nice illustration of Goul's character without gould actually saying very much in the message that's brought back by williamson it says mr williamson brought back the answer that captain aubrey's visit would be convenient and to this, on Williamson's own initiative, he added Captain Ghoul's best compliments. He would have made them respectful, too, if a certain sense of the possible had not restrained him at the last moment, for he loved his captain. Wow. <laughs> so clearly, Captain Ghoul had not been inclined to be respectful, and Williamson really wanted to put that right.
0: Yeah, really. I, it sounds like it really upset Williamson, the way Ghoul had kind of treated his captain. It's just, this Ghoul's turning out to be one of these guys I love to hate. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
1: So while all this is going on, standing on the quarter deck, watching his bargemen talking with the hands below, Jack sees and acknowledges many of his old shipmates and his old crew, and he greets each of them. And he notices Bondan and others walking by him who've sailed with him before, who keep giving him slightly amused and even arch expressions, which he didn't understand. Mike, I I think in the sort of expressive vocabulary of a British Fordex sailor, uh, amused, yes, quite possible. Arch, you know, something very particular must be going on if the looks from the crew are arch. So I think I'm going to have to go and consult the dictionary, get hold of a few synonyms for this idea of arch, try and stretch my imagination as to what is amusing the foremast hands, and I think I'm going to do that during a short break. What do you think?
0: I think that's a great idea. Arch amused. What is going on here? We've had a couple things I just didn't understand in this first half of the first chapter. Let's ponder these things in our heart. Let's.
1: <laughs> if you're enjoying the podcast, please come and join our supporters on Patreon. Go to patreon.com. Forward slash lovers home.
0: Well, welcome back. I hope you had a great break. I hope everybody grabbed their Oxford dictionary, looked up Arch and found what it means here, and maybe O'Brien will let us in on a little bit here. So, O'Brien starts by giving us a little bit more of the backstory on Jack and Captain Ghoul. Um, And perhaps in this is kind of revealing the source of some of Ghoul's ill feelings towards Jack. O'Brien writes, of his own free will, Captain Ghoul would never have received Captain Aubrey. Midshipman Ghoul had behaved meanly, discreditably over that far distant tripe. He had played a material, although admittedly subordinate, part in the theft. He had eaten as much as anyone in the berth, and on being hauled up before Captain Douglas, he had blown the gaff. While utterly denying his share, he had nevertheless turned informer. Boy, we'd love for Stephen to get a hold of him about here. Okay, let me continue on with (laughs) O'Brien. O'Brien writes, It was a pitiful performance, and he had never forgiven Jack Aubrey, but he had no choice about seeing him In the matter of formal calls, the naval etiquette was perfectly rigid. So, you know, we've seen this before in O'Brien, and and I know we've seen this before in life. So I've wronged you. I'm really feeling ashamed about it. And I cover over that uh, you know, shame with anger. It's your fault. I'm angry with you. I mean, God, it's just amazing when you break it down this way. But boy, how many times do you see this thing of people, you know, so mad at us because they've done us wrong? And gotten caught at it. Or perhaps, you know, like Ray, like Ghoul, not quite gotten completely caught and not called out for it and not made to suffer for it. So, you know, that guilt just tears at them. I don't know. Fascinating.
1: Yeah. And, and Ghoul kind of buttresses himself a little bit and buttresses his ego and his own view of himself um, by showing off to his wife. Right, He tells his wife that he wouldn't receive Aubrey or introduce her if he didn't have to, by the rules of the service. So he's saying, I'm, I'm socializing with this guy just under sufferance. He won't offer him a drink, he says, especially because, like his friend Henneage Dundas, he drinks too much and has surely fathered half a dozen natural children. And then O'Brien gives us a peek into the other minds in the cabin there. He says, Jack had not forgotten captain douglas's tripe nor the spectacular consequences of its theft consequences that had seemed catastrophic at the time although and this is what we mentioned earlier in fact he could scarcely have spent his time more profitably since his half year as a common seaman gave him an intimate inside knowledge of the lower deck its likes and dislikes its beliefs and opinions and of the true unvarnished nature of its daily life nor had he forgotten ghoul but he had forgotten the details of Ghoul's conduct, and although he remembered him as something of a scrub, he bore him no ill will. Indeed, as he now walked into the cabin, he was quite pleased to see such an old shipmate, and he congratulated Ghoul on his marriage with perfect sincerity, smiling upon them both with an amiable candour that improved Mrs. Ghoul's already favourable opinion of him. (laughs) Now, I really like this here. Jack is such a generous guy and actually quite a forgetful guy. He, he vaguely remembers, not like in the cut of this guy's jib, but he's absolutely not one to dig into bygones. And Ghoul is crowing about an incident that actually has been entirely to Jack's credit, or at least 99% entirely to Jack's credit, as we're about to find out. And it's just great that we, we all join in in seeing Ghoul kind of hoist with his own petard here, um, just because of being a bit of a jerk in his regard of Jack Aubrey. So Mrs. Gould did not find it at all surprising that he, Jack, had been considered handsome, even now, although his scarred, weather-beaten countenance had nothing but nothing of the bloom of youth, and although he weighed too much, he was not ill-looking. He had a certain massive leonine style, and he fairly towered over Gould, who had no style of any kind, and his blue eyes, all the bluer in his mahogany face, had the good natured expression of one who is willing to be pleased with his company. (laughs) It's a great description of Jack. And do you know what? When I first read this, I thought, are we going to get another Amanda Smith episode here, Mm -hmm. except to the power of two, because she's married and Jack's married. But then I thought, actually the Amanda Smith episode back in Halifax was Jack seeing her, I think, and taking a fancy to her and her being a bit vain and shallow but actually, here, this is the woman just enjoying the sight of Jack, this very charismatic, very kind of ruggedly good looking guy. And I see that the two situations are a little bit different.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And we've got, you know, Jack in Halifax on bad behavior, Jack in Barbados on good behavior, which I love. I love that. Yeah. Well, in, in wishing them well, Jack tells Mrs. Gould that he is a great friend to marriage. She tells him that she recently had the pleasure of meeting Mrs. Aubrey before she left England. And Jack cannot wait to hear all about how she was, how she looked, ask if she'd seen the children. And Jack and Mrs. Gould fall into this long conversation about children, about chickenpox, about you know Jack's daughters, and and um, how they had all recently recovered from the chicken pox and, and and Dundas had taken them on a little cruise. And then he hears the ship's bell and that reminds Jack that, oh my gosh, he's supposed to have returned a surprise, grabbed his fiddle. So there's this fabulous contrast between this complete rake that Ghoul describes and this Jack who is so kind and loving and happy for their marriage and happy about his marriage and his family. And I just... I just love it and i love it that you know as you say ghoul is hoisted his own petard it's it's you know jack doesn't have to say anything mrs ghoul doesn't have to say anything captain ghoul has done all of this to himself here
1: oh it's great isn't it yeah so meanwhile we yeah, get another change of point of view we go back to the conversation between stephen and the admiral surgeon mr waters And having completed his examination, Stephen tells Waters, "'I believe I may venture to assert, although with all the inevitable reserves, of course, that it is not malignant, and that we are in the presence not of the tumour you mentioned, still less of a metastasis, God between us and evil, amen, but of a splanchic teratoma. It is awkwardly situated, however, and must be removed at once.' "'Certainly, dear colleague,' said Waters, fairly glowing with relief, "'at once.' how grateful i am for your opinion i never much care for opening a belly observed stephen looking at the belly in question with an objective considering eye rather like a butcher deciding upon his cut <laughs> and of course in such a position i should require intelligent assistance are your mates competent and of course here he means not his friends but his uh, his surgical assistance and uh, water says they are reckless, drunken, empirical sots, the pair of them, the merest illiterate sawbones. I should be most reluctant to have either of them lay a hand on me. Ah, oh, isn't it nice when people can be picky and choosy about their surgeons? Right,
0: right. Well, it's, it's funny. I remember reading this, getting a little deja vu here. I remember, you know, my surgeon sort of eyeing my belly going, oh, yeah, this is going to be a piece of cake. No problem. <laughs> you know, it's all about the belly. Oh, yeah, and weeks later... Uh, we're finally over
1: it. But <laughs> yeah. So Stephen suggests that perhaps Mr. Martin, Nathaniel Martin, could assist him given all of his dissection experience and his naturalist interest. And I was kind of relieved. I hadn't yet got to wondering what had happened to Nathaniel Martin. But just at the right moment, we get a little reminder that he's doing okay and he's still around. And then Stephen remembers he has to get to the surprise to pick up his cello. Right. Right. Well...
0: Stephen gets lost a couple times, being Stephen, finally makes his way on deck. He finds Williamson, and he learns that Jack returned to the ship at Five Bells, and he remembers, oh yeah, Jack had said something to me about Five Bells and realizes he was supposed to have done the same. He's now very late. And Richardson, the flag lieutenant, offers to take him over in the jolly boat he wants to see some of his old shipmates, especially Moet. And he's, you know, he remembers Moit as a youngster and now Moet's first lieutenant. And Pullings had told him, you know, all about Moet when he had stopped there. So since Stephen is headed to find Jack, Richardson introduces him to somebody who's come aboard looking for Jack. He nods at a tall, young black man. Stephen sees the man standing there with his former shipmates, former surprise shipmates, almost all of them Irish Catholics. And the young man walks towards Stephen looking, Stephen thinks kind of perhaps like a Quaker or maybe like an athletic Irish seminarian that Stephen remembers from kind of West Ireland. And the man takes off his hat and bows and greets Stephen, Dr. Matron, sir, I believe. Uh, The same, sir, said Stephen, returning his salute. The same at your service. He spoke a little at random for the bareheaded young man standing there in the full sun before him was the spit. The counterpart, the image of Jack Aubrey with some 20 years and several stone taken off of him, done in shining ebony. It made no odds that the young man's hair was a tight cap of black curls rather than Jack's long yellow locks, nor that his nose had no Roman bridge. His whole essence, his person, his carriage was the same, even the particular tilt of his head as he now leant towards Stephen with a modest, deferential look. Wow.
1: Ooh.
0: Oh my gosh, you'd know, just knock me over with a feather. Wow. You know, Ghoul had reminded us about the Sally story. We had all these Chekhov references to natural children in the first chapter, which I paid no attention to. And all these strange arch looks at comments about Jack and the black parson, bringing him up around turn, all these things, you know, which caused me to pull out Kindle and Audible, which made no sense. I didn't see this coming. And now we have Stephen, who's been worried about his rumored infidelity, and perhaps Jack also on a bit of a slippery slope to join him as they're going to be heading for home here.
1: It's fabulous, isn't it? And of course, we see how, you know, from, a, the, from the writing and story point of view, we've had Jack at at peak resourcefulness and positiveness. And of course, we couldn't go on loving Jack quite so much, so unconditionally, there's going to be something to come along and undercut that. So it raises the question, how, how is Jack going to respond? What's going to happen next? Right. So. This young black man tells Stephen that he has a letter for Captain Aubrey from Mrs. Aubrey. And by the way, Mike, we're going to talk a lot about Jack's reaction to the situation. I have loads of admiration for Sam, because that's his name, for for Sam's composure and his lack of pushiness or his lack of any kind of assumption. He's just very, very, very calm and gracious. And oh, what a guy. What, What a son to have yes anyhow Stephen asks this man to join him rowing over to the surprise to see the captain and it's quiet as they're rowing over Stephen thinks about what he calls this transposition of his most intimate friend Stephen says he trusts that sam had left mrs aubrey well and the man smiles and says as well sir as ever her friends could desire mm. and Stephen thinks well i really hope that he's right and i really hope that this hasn't taken Sophie aback in the way that it might. He says he knows that Sophie's very perceptive. And also it says, somewhat more subject to jealousy and its attendant misery than was quite consistent with happiness. And without being a prude, she was all perfectly virtuous, naturally virtuous, without the least self-constraint. And O'Brien tells us that everybody on the surprise except Jack, of course, Jack is the last to know. Everybody has been expecting this young man. Word had traveled back from the flagship and everyone had a kindly, decently veiled, but intense curiosity. And it's a real test for a friend, I think, for Stephen to go and see what he can do to prepare the way here. Right.
0: It really kind of brings me back to the to the manners of the time and the subtlety and everything. And I think, oh, my God, you know, I'm just so literal. I, I don't know if I would have survived this world. Because Stephen, Stephen leaves to find Jack. And when he says to him, I'm thinking... You know, if if I'm Jack, I would have said, you know, like, Stephen, tell me. But he says, Jack, listen now, I have strange news. There was a fine, truthful young black man aboard the admiral inquiring for you, told me he had a message from Sophie. So I have brought him along. From Sophie, cried Jack. Stephen nodded and said in a low voice, brother, forgive me, but you may be surprised by the messenger. Do not be disconcerted. (laughs) Will I bring him in? Oh, yes, of course. Uh, Good afternoon to you, sir, said the young man in a deep, somewhat tremulous voice as he held out a letter. When I was in England, Mrs. Aubrey desired me to give you this or to leave it in good hands where I'd gone before your ship came by. Oh, I'm very much obliged to you indeed, sir, said Jack, shaking him warmly by the hand. Pray sit down, Killick, killik there. Rouse out a bottle of Madeira and the Sunday cake. Uh, I'm very truly sorry not to be able to entertain you better sir I'm engaged to the Admiral this evening but perhaps you could dine with me tomorrow and so here I am you know I'm thinking all the things that Stephen <laughs> could have said to Jack to prepare him and Jack being Jack <laughs> Jack just has missed it entirely here he's so caught up with Sophie and Stephen really hasn't given him quite enough here. And I'm thinking, this is me, you know, I'm, I'm such a dope. Oh, I think he would have smoked it right off. But it's, it's, I just love the way O'Brien is kind of leading us gently into this scene. It's just so beautiful.
1: It's beautiful. And it's funny as well, because we can enjoy There's that kind of slapstick element of what's going to happen when the penny finally drops right um so killick and his mate tom burgess who's also black um, can't wait to get in and take a look at the visitor because of course they know what the, what's a clock. they fall over each other pouring the wine and when it says in the text they were alone again jack looked keenly at the young man's face it was strangely familiar surely he must have seen him before yeah in the shaving mirror mate why right. forgive me he said breaking the seal i will just glance into this to see whether there's anything urgent and it was a copy of a letter that Jack had already received elsewhere, but at the bottom of the page was a postscript saying that Sophie was entrusting this to Mr. Illegible, uh, who was bound for the West Indies and who had been so kind as to call on her. So Jack looked up and he was he's clearly feeling this sense of familiarity again, thanks the visitor for bringing in the letter and asks how Sophie was doing and... The the guy tells Jack that the kids had had the chicken pox. So we're back to chicken pox again. But a gentleman whose name he did not catch said there was no danger. And Jack says that Sophie might not have caught his name. And Jack can't make it out in a letter. So he's kind of politely saying, you know, you have me at a bit of an advantage here. Tell me about yourself. And that's the moment for the big reveal. The visitor says, my name is Panda, sir. Samuel Panda. And my mother was Sally Imputa." Since I was going to England with the fathers, she desired me to give you these, he's holding out a package, and that is how I came to go to Ashgrove Cottage, hoping to find you there. God's my life, said Jack, and after a moment he slowly began to open the package. It contained a sperm whale's tooth upon which he, Jack, had laboriously engraved HMS resolution under close-reef topsails when he was a very young man, younger even than the tall youth facing him it also contained a small bundle of feathers and elephant's hair bound together with a strip of leopard skin that is a charm to keep you from drowning observed samuel panda how kind said jack automatically they looked at one another with a naked searching eager on the one side astonished on the other there were few mirrors hanging in Jack's part of the ship, only a little shaving glass in his sleeping cabin, but the extraordinarily elaborate and ingenious piece of furniture that Stephen's wife Diana had given him and that was chiefly used as a music stand had a large one inside the lid. Jack opened it and they stood there side by side, each comparing, each silently, intently looking for himself in the other. And Mike, I'll, I'll, this is a moment that I have, I have a film scene in my head here. <laughs> of these two guys and of the expressions that must pass between them. It's fascinating.
0: It's extraordinary. I agree.
1: <laughs> I am astonished, said Jack at last. I had no idea. No idea in the world. He sat down again. I hope your mother's well. Very well indeed, sir. I thank you. She prepares African medicines in the hospital at Lorenzo Marques, which, by the way, is, is now called Maputo. It's the capital of Mozambique. And the identity of mozambique becomes a little bit important later she prepares african medicines which some patients prefer neither spoke until jack said god's my life again turning the whale tooth in his hand few things at sea could amaze him and he had suffered some shrewd blows without discomposure but now his youth coming so vividly to life took him wholly aback wow wow (laughs) It's a great moment, and it's it's a very it's Mike. It's really odd because it's written so that it's not a like da 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 emotional drama. You know, your life is turned upside down. Punch. It's got this really sort of bittersweet m- mixture of delight and anticipation and humor and generosity and love in it. It's a real oh, very cleverly put together moment. Beautiful writing.
0: Yeah, this father and son. Ooh, I guess the son knew the father existed, obviously. Jack, having never known anything about this, finding one another. And like you say, in this incredibly precious moment, there's this, the, yeah. I just it's just so beautifully written. And, and I love it. Well, I think they're both quiet for a while. And, and Sam finally asked Jack, would, would you like to hear about how I came to be here? And Jack absolutely does. And Sam explains that the fathers took him in when he was a small boy and he was sick. Um, that his mother was married to a, a heathen Zulu witch doctor's, and and the fathers had raised and educated him. And Jack is saying, "Well, well wait a minute, Sheila, that was a Portuguese colony," and he's saying, "Yeah, yeah, it, it is Portuguese, but the missions were all Irish, and so the two fathers raised him. They took Sam to England with them on their way to the West Indies, and." Going to England, Sam had hoped, having heard about him from Jack from his mother, that he could find Jack in England as well as deliver uh, Sally's gifts to Jack here. As you say, Ian, this young man and on, on audible, this uh, the voice here—it's got this deep. Irish thing as Sam speaks and everything. And he's so even in there, he's just so kind and genteel. And and Jack's now, I think, finally kind of getting a little bit past the shock of it all says, Well, well, now that you've found me. What can I do for you? And Jack, instead of waiting for an answer, immediately launches into this thing about, I wish we had found each other earlier. I could have helped you with the Navy, but, but now it's probably too late. But but wait a minute, have you ever considered becoming a ship's clerk? And, and Jack starts to tell him about the advantages of that life. And, and O'Brien writes, he spoke at some length and with considerable warmth, the pleasures of a life at sea. But after a while, he thought he detected a look of affectionate amusement in Sam's eye. A discreet and perfectly respectful look, but enough to cut off his flow. I just love this.
1: <laughs> and by the way, it paints Sam as a very particular character. You know, he's got yeah. enough you know, composure and strength of his own character to, to kind of cut Jack off without actually insulting him. Not, not very many people, especially not very many men in this story, have had that position relative to Jack.
0: Even earlier when when he Sam and and Stephen were rowing across, you know, to the surprise, you know, Stephen kind of reflects that it, it kind of delightfully that that Sam, unlike most youth, was able just to yeah. stay silent. And and everything was oh he was okay with the silence. So he is a different kind of guy. I love that. Yeah. This. yeah.
1: And he's got this very mature, very generous way of coming back to Jack and yes. politely explaining what's o'clock in terms of Sam and his plans and his life. You are very kind, sir, said Sam, and truly benevolent. But I am not come to ask for anything at all, apart from your good word and the blessing. Of course that you have. Bless you, Sam. But um, but I should like some, something more su- substantial to help you live. Yet, perhaps I mistake. Perhaps you have a capital place. Perhaps these gentlemen employ you. They do not, sir. Sure, I attend them in duty bound too, particularly Father Power and he lame of a foot. By the way, I love the Irish usage that's built into Zap's dialogue, it's really, really great. Particularly Father Power and he lame of a foot, but it is the mission sustains me. Another great Irish sentence. Ah it is the mission sustains me. Right. Sam cried Jack. Do not tell me you are a papist. I am sorry to disappoint you, sir, said Sam, smiling. But a papist I am, and so much so that I hope in time to be a priest if ever I can have a dispensation. At present, I am only in minor orders. Well, said Jack, recollecting himself, one of my best friends is a Catholic. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah, that's fine. Some of my best friends are Catholic. All right. Dr. Maturin, you met him. The learned man of the world he is, I am sure, said Sam, who seems to be getting more Irish with every sentence. Right. The learned man of the world he is, I am sure, said Sam with a bow. And they, they continue the conversation with strong reminders, Mike, to the time many books ago, in fact, several times over the uh, the canon when Jack has put his foot in it, um, saying something dismissive about papists in Steve's, Stephen's company. Ah. But... Sam says he's on his way to Brazil with these other priests. Since Sam is black and speaks Portuguese, being from Mozambique, they think he can be a great help reaching Negro slaves as part of the mission there.
0: Going back to your earlier part about why O'Brien doesn't bring us to the West Indies often. Isn't it beautiful how when he does, it's somebody to reach the slaves and it's the black son of Jack Aubrey.
1: Very good. Very, very good well i am sure you will says jack meaning i'm I'm sure you'll be a great help Uh, i am sure i shall be able to say that one of my best friends is not only catholic but black into the bargain (laughs) one of my best friends i think you'll find he's your son anyhow um, one of my best friends is not only catholic but black into the bargain he's very very close (laughs) to being uh to being on a lee shore there why stephen he says what's amiss I'm sorry to burst in upon you, but your signal is flying aboard the Admiral. Mowat is deeply disturbed at the possibility of lateness. The gig is alongside, and my cello is already in it. I say, my cello is already in the gig. Jack checked a blasphemous cry, caught up his violin, and said, Come along with us, Sam. The gig will pull you ashore and take you off again tomorrow, if you choose to see the ship and dine with me and Dr. Maturin. Ha!
0: Wow. What a great chapter. Oh my goodness. Just, wow. 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 And just when you thought we'd kind of seen it all, O'Brien, boy, opens up with just a phenomenal chapter one here on book 11.
1: <sighs> so uh, to be fair, he's he's packed quite a lot in here. He's, he's packed in an important new secondary character. We've got an important piece of arc, you know, for Jack, but we still got loads of questions waiting on our attention, right? Right, right, right. We've got this secret
0: war inside Whitehall. Are Jack and Stephen going to head home from here? We know we've got this big court martial coming up. We've been putting it off, and I've kind of, it's one of those things where it's almost like being in remission. You quit thinking about it. Is this really the surprise's final journey? Is she off to the knacker's yard now? You know, is this going to be the end of the ship's company, this wonderful handpicked
1: crew? Ah. Uh. And what about this court martial that the admiral is so keen on, but Jack feels a very strong distaste for? Um, we've had some heavy reminders as well of Jack's misfortune ashore. How long until he's back in hot water ashore? And is that going to take us back into the realms of Chekhov's stock market that we heard about a few paragraphs ago?
0: Boy, great questions, Ian. I don't. I don't know. How do we answer those? I. I... I can only think of one way.
1: I think we have to turn over to chapter two, Mike. So what do you say next week to a little bit more Patrick O'Brien?
0: Oh, I should like that of all things.
1: Best friends is a Catholic. (laughs) Exactly.